Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone and welcome to LawPod. I'm Rachel Colleen, a lecturer here at Queen's University Belfast and I'm joined today by uh, my friend and colleague Dr Amanda Kramer, another lecturer in the School of Law. And today we are talking about justice and security in the UK and the impact of Brexit. Now, Amanda, you had been doing some research into this area. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the research that you've done? Yes, and thank you for having me. So I just completed a research project um, with two colleagues at universities um, in England and Scotland, Dr. Rachel Dixon and Dr. Annie Poos. Um, And the project was commissioned by the Joint Committee of the two Human Rights Commissions on the island of Ireland. Um, So basically they had spotted this gap in the research that was being produced on Brexit. Not very many people were talking about Brexit and security and it wasn't really featuring in the political debates. Um, So they put out this call um, for research to be done on this area. Um, So that's where this project came from. Okay, and what kind of areas did you look at? Um, So there were five different um, areas that we looked at in the project. Um, We looked at extradition, um, policing and prosecutorial cooperation more generally between the UK and the EU. Um, We looked at cooperation, specifically cross-border cooperation on the island of Ireland. Um, We looked at information and data sharing and also uh, oversight. So a lot to unpick there. So maybe we could just take each of the areas and then maybe you could tell us a bit about the findings under each and then maybe we can think about some of the broader themes that came out. Yeah, no problem. So what were, so you said policing and prosecutorial cooperation. Mm-hmm. What were some of the main findings there then? Um, so we were looking really broadly at the ways in which um the police and the prosecution services cooperate. Um, So between the whole of the UK and kind of the whole of the EU and the tools that the EU has um, created in order to facilitate this cooperation. Um, So one of the things that we found is that this cooperation has always taken place between European countries. The difference, I think, with the creation of the EU was that they created tools to bring this cooperation Um, into a structure with oversight. So they created more formal mechanisms of cooperation um, that could be used, which had oversight to ensure that things like human rights um, were hopefully being protected. Um, So the UK has really been a kind of pivotal force in driving a lot of this cooperation. Um, So, you know, They have helped to create things like databases um, that help police share information. They've helped to um, push forward joint investigation teams where police forces across the European Union can come together and investigate a particular uh, crime or a particular type of crime that's happening across their jurisdictions. Um, So they they really have had this kind of central role in pushing forward um, policing and prosecutorial cooperation. And... Interestingly, I think one of the key things that we found is that a lot of this they won't be able to do necessarily, um, depending on the Brexit scenario that we end up with. Um, So, for example, if we have a no deal Brexit, 
the UK will be removed from a lot of those cooperation tools, or if it's not removed, it won't have any kind of say in what's going on. So it might be, for example, the UK might be um, invited to participate in joint investigation teams, uh, but they wouldn't be able to lead those teams. They would just be kind of contributing um, with without a leadership role. So they wouldn't be able to, you know, propose an investigation or anything like that. Um, so I think we would see a big shift in terms of what the UK's role would be um, with those different types of cooperation. And so if there's a no deal, when would that kick in? Is that something that is just instantaneous on 31st of October or 31st of January or whenever this yeah. kicks off? Yeah. So the okay. problem with a no deal is it will instant, the UK will instantly lose access to most of these things. Um, the benefit of leaving with a deal is that they have negotiated a transition period, um, which basically means that the UK would still be able to be part of these tools for approximately two years. Um, and that would give them time to negotiate some kind of future arrangement. So the UK could theoretically, even in a no-deal scenario, negotiate access to some of these tools that have a precedent for third-country membership, so for countries that are outside of the EU. Um, but that's going to take a lot of time, and they're going to be doing it from completely outside of those tools. Um, so it's much, much easier, I think, for the UK to secure some kind of access um, if we're in a deal scenario leaving. And when you say a long time, does that mean months or weeks or years or um we don't really know the only example i can really give you is in terms of extradition um so iceland and norway negotiated an extradition arrangement um with the eu and it took 10 years to right. negotiate um so the it concluded in 2006 and that deal still isn't implemented um so they're not part of the european arrest warrant yet so so you're talking implications that last potentially decades, potentially kicking off at the end of October. And what is that, you know, you were saying about, yes, we can still be involved in investigations. What what does it mean for the average person living in the UK for the UK to suddenly be opting out of these kind of arrangements? I, I think there's two key things that came across um, in the study that we were doing. So I think the two key things really for the average person are uncertainty um, and potential human rights implications. Um, so basically I think the police have been, you know, very reliant on these tools. Prosecution has been very reliant on these tools. Um, and domestically we don't necessarily have all of these things in place. So for example, the police at the moment, um, rely on information and data sharing databases that come from the EU and, a lot of those databases, there is no domestic equivalent. So the the UK feeds in all of this information um, that's important for policing, and it gets back all of this information. But they're all of the police forces are reliant on that um, that EU database, and there is no domestic equivalent. And it might take years before the UK can develop something that would be as effective as what exists. So there's going to be I think this period of time that there's a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty for people in terms of, you know, what human rights protections they might have, what the police can do and what they can't do. Um, but also uncertainty in relation to the police, because there will be this potentially immediate shift where 
they knew the rules and they knew the tools and then they don't. Um, so they don't know necessarily what's legal in terms of cooperation. They don't know what information they can share and what information they can't share um, with other police forces if they're doing, you know, joint investigations and things like that. Um, so it creates a lot of uncertainty, which is never a good thing in terms of public confidence in the police. Um, and there, there are also potentially safety issues as well. Um, so, for example, the, the Home Secretary, um, the former Home Secretary, Theresa May, had said at that time when she was Home Secretary that, you know, losing access to some of these tools would be a major security threat to the UK, for example, extradition. Um, but you could also make that same argument for information and data sharing um, in the context of, you know, the type of crime that we see today and the type of crime that people are quite fearful of, like terrorism, a lot of that information, um, you know, on people that would potentially commit those types of crimes comes from these EU databases and the alerts are immediate. Police get those alerts right to their phones. Um, so there are potential safety issues. Um, and I don't, I don't want to over egg this, but I also think that people need to know, you know, that there are risks there, um, in terms of public safety and also public confidence. And what was your sense? You know, did you talk to the police in, well, I guess mostly Northern Ireland, but also your colleagues in other places, how prepared are they for this eventuality? Um, well, all of our, none of our interviewees can be identified, um, for anonymity reasons, but I can tell you what they've been saying in the news. Um, so they have been making public statements. Um, mostly I think the police service in Northern Ireland, um, and the guards in the South have been saying that they're very concerned about, you know, this potential gap in protection, um, and gap in tools that are essential for them to be able to continue to to engage in effective policing. Um, so they've been very vocal about things like losing um, the European arrest warrant, but there are also conversations about the specific implications for Northern Ireland, um, you know, what that will mean for policing here, what that will mean for being able to engage in cross-border cooperation. Um, there have also been some discussions now kind of more recently emerging about data sharing and information sharing and, you know, that these, that these tools and these databases are really important. Um, and policing, you know, has developed around these tools over the past decade. Um, so they just don't know what that's going to mean and what that's going to mean for people and their safety as well. Ah, good times. Yes. So <laughs> what, what would be the best case scenario in terms of ensuring continued effective policing and cooperation? Um, well, the, I guess, our study found that as much can kind of continuity as possible, which obviously would be not having Brexit, um, it would ensure that things would stay the exact same. I, that's not necessarily a very realistic future scenario. Um, so kind of barring that, um, having some type of agreement in place, having a withdrawal agreement would definitely be much more desirable than a no deal Brexit because we would have this time, you know, that we would still be a part of these tools and that we could also negotiate access um, for when we finally do properly leave the European Union. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, some of the other themes then that you had looked at, I guess you've kind of talked a little bit about data sharing and extradition, um, but you'd also talked about cross-border justice on our island, the island of Ireland. What were some of your main findings there? Yeah, I think, well, a lot of that had to do with um, policing cooperation. So I think 
the biggest thing that came across in our interviews were in relation to the loss of the European arrest warrant. Um, so for the PSNI specifically, the police service in Northern Ireland, um, they rely on that tool quite extensively in their cooperation um, with the South. So basically the way that it's used is if someone commits a crime um, in Northern Ireland and flees across the border to the Republic of Ireland, the police here can issue a European arrest warrant um, for that person's return to the North. Um, and that's used quite often because, you know, there is a 300 mile land border. It's very easy for people to cross the border in an attempt to evade justice. Um, and the way that the European arrest warrant has been designed is makes it much easier. So it's very quick in comparison to the old um, methods of extradition that were used, which we would find under the 1957 convention, um, which is also a European measure. Um, so the European arrest warrant is much, much quicker. Um, so it's like three to four times quicker. So for example, you know, you could have potentially if all of the things went right, you could have someone back in seven days. Um, they, it's much less costly. And I think one of the biggest things, or there's two big things actually, um, in the context of Ireland and Northern Ireland that there's, um, under the European arrest warrant, there's no nationality bar, um, so under the old arrangements, a country could refuse to extradite their own nationals. And that's very complicated in this context, as you know, because people in Northern Ireland um, can hold an Irish passport or a British passport or both. So in theory, what that could mean is that someone who's an Irish passport holder in Northern Ireland could flee to the Republic of Ireland and the Republic could refuse to extradite them because they have an Irish passport. So they have this nationality and there's a nationality bar built into those old extradition arrangements. Um, and the European arrest warrant got rid of that. And then the other thing is the European arrest warrant moved extradition from being in the kind of political realm to being in the judici judicial realm. Um, so under the old arrangements, um, extradition would have been negotiated through diplomatic channels, which obviously is, is much more difficult to achieve um, some kind of agreement on, um, whereas the European arrest warrant is negotiated uh, through the judicial channels. Um, so it's much easier, and the politics are kind of taken out of it largely because it's in the hands of judges. Um, so I think the police are very concerned about what that would mean in terms of, you know, being able to extradite people across the border when they've committed a crime. Um, there are also concerns that have been raised in relation to their ability to cooperate on cross-border crime. Depending on the type of Brexit that we have, we might see an increase in cross-border crime. Um, so for example, if we have differences in taxes and regulations, people are going to take advantage of that and smuggle goods across the border that will be you know, to their advantage. Um, and so we're concerned, um, and some of our interviewees expressed concern about the ability of the police to be able to effectively cooperate, either that they won't know the tools and the rules that they're under, um, or that they'll have to build new avenues for cooperation, which might take a long time. Um, and one of the other things that was raised by our interviewees um, was the issue of informal and formal police cooperation. So what people have said to us is that the creation of these EU tools brought a lot of cooperation that used to take place informally behind closed doors with no transparency 
into this kind of formal realm with a lot more oversight, human rights protections built into it. Um, so there is a concern because of this really long history of cooperation between the two police forces that, you know, even if we leave and they don't have access to these tools, people have said that they're concerned that there will just be a return to informal policing. You know, someone on one side of the border knows their colleagues on the other side of the border. They might be five minutes away. They just pick up the phone, you know, ask for evidence that they're not allowed to ask for or some kind of favor. Um, you know, this could be intentional, but it could also be accidental because they just won't necessarily know what the rules are in those circumstances. Um, and then obviously there's the issue of the peace process. Um, so that was one of the biggest themes I think as well that came across that, um, there is an expectation. The police have been very vocal about this, um, in Northern Ireland that there will be disruption. There will be a potential for violence. Um, and, you know, depending on the Brexit scenario that we have, the police are going to be potentially very preoccupied um, with trying to deal with that, which diverts resources away from dealing with everyday kinds of crimes and public protection. So there are a whole host of issues, I think, that are not just specific to Northern Ireland, but are much more complicated by what's going on here. So a couple of things out of that, you talked about the EU had kind of formalized things that were happening anyway, and there was this informal cooperation. What can you say a bit more about what the risks are with informal cooperation? You know, you'd said they might break rules or they might do things accidentally that aren't, you know, by the book. But what are the implications for the average person, you know, living under these kind of police forces? Probably one of the biggest one is that sensitive data would be shared. Um, on people that shouldn't be shared um, so that we uh, wouldn't necessarily have the human rights protections in place to allow for that kind of information to be shared with an EU country. Um, the EU has very specific guidelines in terms and standards in terms of um, what protections need to be in place domestically to be able to share information. Um, so that gives the average citizen a fair amount of protection um, in terms of, you know, the sharing of their personal information, particularly, obviously, in the context of policing, that's much more sensitive information. Um, I think one of the other things that's come up as well is in relation to kind of things like um, procedural rights and due process rights. So the removal of these EU tools means that a lot of this cooperation is going to take you know, three or four times as long as it does at the moment, which has knock-on implications, not only for people who've been accused of crime, they might be waiting in limbo, you know, for a year or two years, potentially, um, finding out, you know, if they're, if charges have been pursued against them, waiting to be extradited somewhere. This also has implications for victims and witnesses because they're also waiting in limbo for, you know, potentially significantly longer amount of time. Um, so I think that way, anyone who could potentially be a victim or could potentially commit a crime, there would be implications for them as well. Um, so I think probably those are the, the main issues. And then you'd also said that obviously the kind of backdrop to all of this is our peace process. How much did you find the peace process or threats to the peace process was present when you were doing this research? 
Um, nearly every interviewee that we spoke to on the island of Ireland did mention it. And some people um, in Scotland and uh, England and Wales also mentioned it as a concern. So I think it's it's at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, in a previous project that I was working on, we spoke to some um, communities that uh, are in the border areas. And we also spoke to some dissident uh, Republican people as well. And there were a lot of interesting concerns that were raised. Um, so from a community perspective, a lot of people were saying, you know, just average people who would never really normally engage in any kind of criminal activity um, or any kind of dissident activity. Um, but they were saying, you know, that if there's any kind of infrastructure on the border, if there's any kind of feeling that they're returning to these kind of barriers between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, that they would go out themselves and they would be tearing down equipment. And what that means in terms of a practical kind of policing perspective is that then the police have to get involved and they potentially have to start, you know, patrolling or monitoring this equipment to make sure that uh, it doesn't get torn down and that it stays in place. And then there are fears, and the police have expressed this as well, that they become easy targets uh, for dissident Republicans. Um, and the dissident Republican groups that we've spoken to have said, you know, that um, that Brexit has been manna from heaven in terms of recruitment. Um, so it's been really easy now for, well, in comparison, I guess, to the, the last couple of years, um, for dissident Republicans to recruit new members because, you know, there is this kind of feeling of divisiveness in the community. And there's also this feeling that there's going to be a further separation between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Um, so it's been this kind of recruitment tool. And the police have said as well publicly that um, they have been seeing more incidents. There have been more targets on police lives and things like that. So I think there's a lot of a lot of concerns um, sp that specifically relate to the peace process. Where does that anger come from in terms of the communities that you spoke to, you know, these people that would not have been involved in any criminal activity but want to tear down the infrastructure if it appears on their border? My sense of it is that people live very kind of cross-border lives now. Um, and a lot of the people that we did talk to were older and have lived through the peace process. They've lived through the troubles. Um, so I think there's probably a couple of things going on that one thing is definitely that people don't just don't want to return to the past. Um, so a lot of the kind of older generation people that we were speaking to were saying that, you know, any infrastructure on the border is going to remind them of the bad times that they went through. And they just don't want to have to see that um, going up. They don't want any kind of disruption to their lives. Um, so I think there's anger there that, you know, that Brexit is pushing us backwards. Uh, and also, I think it's the nature of people's lives now um, that people don't, you know, people that live on the border don't live as though it's a border between two countries. You know, they drive across, people drive across the border every day. You know, they might pop over to the shop or pop over to see friends or family. So I think there's just an element of this anger about how much it would disrupt people's daily lives. Um, you know, and even things like people going to work, what's that going to mean? Will they have to go through some kind of check? Um, so I think there's, 
there's anger in that sense as well, that it's just, it's going to be potentially so disruptive for people. Um, so th there really are kind of two parallel things I think going on. Did you, this may be beyond the scope of the research you were doing, but did you get a sense that this concern over the introduction of a harder border was changing people's understandings or opinions on a united Ireland or the kind of constitutional makeup of these islands? It's beyond the scope of the project that I'm doing at the moment, but we would have uh, engaged with that on the project that I was working on before uh, with Professor Colin Harvey. And that definitely was something that was coming through. Um, people, you know, from both communities were saying in our public meetings that we were holding that they would rather have, uh, you know, be part of a united Ireland and not have this kind of disruption um, than to have a hard border and continue to be part of the UK. And I, I think a lot of that is just from a practical perspective. You know, people like um, people engaged in business, small businesses particularly, who do a lot of cross-border trade and depend on um, this kind of speedy access, that their businesses wouldn't be profitable anymore if there was a hard border. So, yeah, I think... I think it's those kind of practical concerns that are motivating people. Um, and then obviously it raises tensions as well because that's a very um, divisive issue. And there are a lot of people that would be very against um, a united Ireland. So I think it's definitely, I think Brexit has raised this debate because, you know, the Good Friday Agreement generally settled it and it hasn't, you know, it's been part of politics, but more in the background. Um, but we've seen a massive resurgence of this kind of discussion, uh, with, with the referendum. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, we kind of tangented, tangented, is that a word? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> we went off on the tangent there. Yes. <laughs> to return to your report then, we've kind of meandered through the different themes a bit, and that makes sense because you talked about them being really overlapping. Mm -hmm. What what would you say were the main kind of takeaway points from your research? I I think one of the biggest things for us that stood out is interconnectedness. Um, so the way that the EU tools for justice and security cooperation have been developed has been kind of piecemeal. And as a gap has been exposed, a new tool has been created to try to fill in that gap. But what that means is that a lot of the measures for justice and cooperation interact with each other or are dependent on each other. Um, and really interestingly, the discourse in the political realm has not really acknowledged that fact. You know, so there's all of particularly, I think, a couple of years ago, there were all these discussions saying things like, oh, we can we'll just continue our current justice and cooperation, security cooperation measures. Um, we we don't want to be a part of the Court of Justice of the European Union. We don't want the charter. Um, but we do want access to all of the databases that we currently have. We do want access to the European arrest warrant. But there was no engagement with the practicalities or the actual possibility of that happening. Um, because in order to be part of both of those things, you know, there are rules written in that, you know, for some of them that you have to have these kind of charter protections, that you have to be um, under the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice of the EU, um, because that's what provides the oversight and the human rights protections. Um, so there hasn't been an engagement, I don't think, with 
the way that these tools interact with each other and how important it is to, you know, have access to all of these things that the UK currently has access to. Um, and I think linked in with that as well are human rights concerns, which also haven't really been part of the justice and security discourse that that has been taking place on Brexit. Um, you know, there are human rights concerns that have that we've raised and other people have raised uh, in relation to losing what we currently have. Um, so alongside the development of these justice and security tools, human rights protections have also been developed. And I'm not saying it's perfect. There are a lot of problems, but what we have now is much better than what we had in the past in terms of human rights protections. And for some of these things, we'll be reverting to past instruments, which means that we potentially lose some of the human rights protections that are built in. And a lot of that, to be honest, has to do with oversight and losing the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice of the EU. Um, so I think, you know, those are two of the biggest themes that we wanted to emphasize because we don't feel like they've been discussed enough um, in the media. The other big thing is how detrimental a no deal would be for justice and security. Um, losing access to all of these things, as we talked about, you know, this kind of uncertainty that is created, I think it would just be such a huge problem for the UK to be able to maintain its security um, in a post-Brexit environment if we leave without a deal, because it will just, so much access will just be immediately cut um, to a lot of the tools that it currently relies on, um, you know, specifically in relation, I think, to information and data sharing with other police forces. Um, and... I th yeah, I think just kind of generally public confidence and, and uncertainty and trust um, and also trust, you know, between the police forces and prosecution services that have been built up. They've, you know, they've done a lot of the EU has provided opportunities for learning, for best exchange of best practice, um, for, you know, discussing really complicated human rights issues or really complicated domestic issues that other European countries might also be experiencing, but in a different context. Um, and, you know, so there's a lot of opportunities that will be lost. And I think what we were talking about before, what it will mean for the public, what it will mean for the police and doing their day-to-day -day jobs, you know, we just, I think there will be a lot of this trust that has been built up over a long period of time will potentially be lessened because people will feel insecure. They don't know, you know, what kind of human rights protections they're going to have. They don't know what tools the police have access to, or if they're going to be focused on, you know, policing a border and not helping them through day-to-day -day problems. Um, so I think those would probably be the main overarching themes um, that we would emphasize. When you were doing this study, were there any benefits to justice and security of Brexit? Um, I think benefits is probably too strong of a word. The one thing, if we left with a deal, I think from a human rights perspective, there could be some potential avenues for uh, strengthening human rights protections if there was the political will to do so. Um, you know, so for example, if the UK was negotiating a new extradition arrangement with the EU, they could build in more human rights protections than what currently exist um, in the treaty if they wanted to. Um, 
And this could be done, you know, across the board. I'm not saying that the EU stops them from doing this because it, that's not true. Um, but it could potentially be a kind of starter for the UK to be able to push for further um, human rights protections. But uh, to be honest, unfortunately, I would like to end with something positive. <laughs> but um, there, you know, from a kind of practical standpoint, from for police and prosecution, from a human rights perspective, uh, there aren't really any benefits um, to being outside of these tools. What would you say, you know, I know Colin, your colleague and others have got crap from people saying, oh, you're, you know, academics are remoners and all this, you know, we, we are pursuing a kind of political agenda and this kind of work. Like, what what do you think when you hear those kind of criticisms? To be honest, it's really frustrating. Um, both of the projects that I've worked on we've tried really, really hard to be as neutral as possible to collect all of the evidence that we possibly can from all of the perspectives that we possibly can and analyze it, you know, from as kind of fact-based standpoint that we can, taking our own ideologies um, and opinions out of it. And, you know, the facts speak for themselves. Um, If people wanted to do this research, they would find the same things. Um, So I think... There has definitely been, I think, in the context of Brexit, maybe more generally with this kind of rise of populism, but there has definitely been an attack on people that we would typically think of as being experts, Um, you know, that that their opinions are biased or their research is biased. But I really don't think that's true. I think that the research is just telling us that there are a lot of problems. I don't think that they were thought through before this referendum took place. Um, we didn't have a lot of this information, so people didn't know what was going to happen. Even academics, a lot of us didn't know what could potentially happen before the referendum, even in the immediate aftermath of the referendum. Um, so it, it is really frustrating, I think, and a lot of colleagues would probably feel the same, that we're just trying to help and to inform people um, and to find areas you know, that need to be highlighted as potential problems um, or potential benefits. Uh, if if there were any, if there are, <laughs> there, there definitely are maybe in other areas, just not Brexit or just not justice and security. Um, but yeah, it's very frustrating. Where could people find out more about the research that you've done? You, so the full report, um, if you have time to sit down and read, you know, about a hundred pages, um, is available on the, um, human rights commission's website, both, um, the Irish and the Northern Irish, uh, commissions. So you can access the full report there. There is an executive summary. So if you don't want to sit down and spend a couple hours <laughs> reading through, um, you know, there's a nine pages, I think. Um, and in, in that document, we make recommendations. So it's not just, you know, doom and gloom, but it's also how we move forward um, in the different kind of various potential exit scenarios. Um, so people can access it on those websites. And where can they find out more about you and your work? Um, they can find, I have a profile on Queen's University Belfast, uh, website, so they could find more information on there. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. You've been listening to Law of Pods, a production by the staff and students at Queen's University Belfast in the School of Law. The episode today was produced by Richard Somerville. My guest is Amanda Kramer and I am Rachel Khalid. You can find us on Twitter at QUB Law Pod and you can listen to all our episodes through iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and on our website, lawpod.org. Thanks for listening.